Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today, I've got a pair of guests who work as part of an interprofessional, interdisciplinary team to treat pain in kids in the pediatric emergency department. Dr. Daniel C is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, and Hillary Woodward is a child life specialist. Now, the genesis of this podcast was actually, I got a hold of Dan, and I wanted to talk with him about pharmacologic management of pain in the ED. And his response was, actually, let's bring Hillary into this, and we'll talk about how we treat this as a team in a holistic manner, because everybody always wants to talk about the drugs, but there's so many things you can do that either lessen the need for them or improve their efficacy. What was supposed to be a 20-minute recording turned into an hour because we were having such an incredible discussion. So this first part of this podcast is the main section of the discussion. It's about 20 minutes long, and we really dig into why is pain a problem in kids in the ED? Where do we go wrong from a behavioral and environmental standpoint? And we talk about some easy interventions to try to improve the experience of painful procedures in kids in the ED. I'm going to publish a bonus episode that has about another 30 minutes of content where we dig in even more on some of the specific issues, but that's going to come after this one. I also want to note that this is being done as a series that we're working on where we're going to highlight some of the work that's being done by the incredible researchers through the PCARN network. Dan has done some work on intranasal pain medication and intranasal sedation in kids, and Hillary has been involved just in the background work on some of those studies. So keep a lookout for their names as well as some of my additional pieces coming up on the exciting work that PCARN is doing to improve the care of kids in emergency departments and urgent cares. Now, as always, I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to let Dan and Hillary introduce themselves. My name is Hillary Woodward and I am a certified child life specialist in the pediatric emergency department at New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital at Columbia University Medical Center. I first got involved in pain in large part because I met Dan. I joined our PEDS ED team almost nine years ago. And at that point in time, Dan was starting up a pain committee, which I'm sure he'll talk about when he introduces himself. But I had had some education about non-pharmacological pain management as part of my graduate education, which I had just completed when I was hired for RED. So when he was interested in having all of the child life specialists involved, it was an easy yes. So my name is Daniel C. I'm one of the pediatric emergency medicine attendings where Hillary works. And I actually started off with zero interest in pain. As a medical student, as a resident, I thought it was soft. I thought it was hard to assess. I thought it had no good endpoints. And I really wanted to have nothing to do with it. But the way I eventually got into it is actually during fellowship, where I was looking for an interesting research project and decided to look at the use of intranasal ketamine for procedural sedation. And as I started getting more involved with learning about sedation and just being more hands-on in the clinical setting in the emergency department, I realized that uh, you know the assessment of pain, the management of pain is not so soft, is actually very important and is actually really not managed well. I think we have a lot of well-meaning people. I think that no one will ever say that they want kids to be in pain. <laughs> but at the same time, I think we can all agree that the reality sometimes doesn't match up with people's aspirations. And I think that's why this is such a 
great area to be working in, a great area to contribute to because there's so much that can be done and really has such lasting impacts on kids. I'm going to ask this question knowing uh, that you guys will have some answers to it, but aren't we aren't we all already really good at managing children's pain and anxiety in the ED? Isn't this like what we do all day, every day? And so why why do we even need to talk about this? Uh, is this the end of the recording already? Dan touched on this really well. It's something that we have to address often, but it doesn't always mean that we do it optimally. And I'll say at least in the world of child life, reflective practice is so much a part of what we do. So it's this constant process of looking at the interactions that we have with patients and families and figuring out what we can improve upon. And certainly I think in the emergency setting, just because we deal with so many additional barriers, we deal with high volumes of patients, we deal with high acuity of patients, we oftentimes deal with these new challenges now like COVID is presenting. There are so many things that can get in the way of what we know is best practice around pain that I think we constantly have to assess and reassess what we're doing and figure out how we can make it better. To her point, I think that the ED in particular is a very challenging place to do it because like she said, it's a place where we are constantly bombarded either with symptomatic pain, the pain that the child comes in for, or procedural pain, pain that we're causing in order to help them make them feel better. And to her point, the challenges that we face are constant. You know, there's issues with flow, patient volume. You're worried about the septic kid who's in the room next to you. It's very easy, I think, to justify taking some shortcuts related to pain management because we always feel like there's something quote unquote, more important or more urgent. But I think part of the challenge and sort of part of why we like doing what we do is because, um, you know, we're always trying to bring pain back into the forefront, but also finding creative ways that we can manage pain and anxiety despite these challenges, despite the challenging ED setting and all of the other things we're faced with. So let's talk a little bit about techniques for helping reduce pain or, and I actually don't even know the right terminology here, improve the the experience of pain. That, that sounds kind of cruel, but but how, how we handle it better. And, and I, I want to talk about non-pharmacologic methods first. So Hillary, some of this is going to be right in your, your wheelhouse. Help us understand what ways we can address pre-procedural uh, preparation or environment? Like what, what things should people be aware of if they're, they know they're going to do a procedure that will hurt a kid or cause them some sort of anxiety, which will change their experience? To speak to your point first about the environment, I think sometimes we underestimate the power that we have as clinicians or even just as adults who are around a child and family in terms of how we set the tone. So something that very often happens in a busy ED and definitely happens with me because I'm sort of a high energy personality. I'm speaking a lot slower now than I typically do. I tend to go a million miles an hour. But in the clinical environment, I find I have to do the same thing I'm doing now in terms of deliberately slowing myself down, dropping my voice, projecting calm and confidence. Because if the patient and family sense our frenetic response to the environment and things that are going on around them, they may internalize that as though something is wrong with them or there's a problem or there's something where they also need to be more heightened. And that just sets them up for more 
potential anxiety, more potential stress, um, and all of those things can heighten their pain. So I think that's the first thing that we can do is to sort of try hard though it may be to reset ourselves when we're entering a new interaction with a patient and family. I have a colleague who actually coined that environmental child life. So Vanessa Andrews, thank you for that, for that term. So the things that we do to whether it's the child life specialist or not, to set the tone in the environment. And I would think about, as we think about a kid's spa, what's at a kid's spa is probably lots of play. So that's the other ingredient that we try to add in is something that is playful, normalizing, and distracting. Let's talk about that. I've seen that referred to as medical play in some of the papers. Is that the term that you use? And, and what, what does that mean? How do you do it? Sure. So in child life, medical play is a term that we use to describe an intervention that's not necessarily for teaching typically, but that's more about giving a child free access to and control with medical materials that they might encounter. Now, depending on the age of the child, the developmental level, there has to be some critical adult decision-making about what's safe and not safe for them to use independently. But generally speaking, materials that a child might see, such as an empty syringe, maybe a little bit of water, a little bit of Play-Doh so that they can practice pushing things through the syringe if they choose to. Could be Band-Aids, could be gauze, could be tape could be an anesthesia mask if we're using nitrous oxide or if the child can expect to be going to the operating room or having some other type of procedure that uses the mask. Really, the possibilities are endless, and it actually can be really neat to just observe what the child does with the materials. And I tend to like to use this as part of my assessment process if there's time to not necessarily jump right in and say to a child, here's what we're going to do, here's how it's going to be, but to actually give them some time to just explore at their own pace and to have more control. I think this is really interesting because my uneducated initial thought would be that if you let them see all of these materials early on, that that will just increase their level of fear or, or maybe, you know, scare them in the way I expect needles to scare them. And that's a great point you bring too. It depends on the child, right? So everybody's a little bit different. Some kids present is really curious and they walk into the room and they're immediately going, what's that? What's that? Or maybe they're trying to grab at and touch things. And that's a great indicator to me that maybe I can introduce more of the materials right away. And then there are other children who are a very apparently more reluctant. They're almost sort of shrinking into themselves and maybe even physically recoiling when they see one of us as a clinician reach for something. So that's a child with whom I would begin a lot slower and always seeking, of course, the caregiver input with whatever adult is accompanying them because those adults are the ones who know them best and know what might work for them not work for them. You've done some of that introduction of the materials without structured instruction. And then how do you transition that into to teaching both the, the patient and the family what you're about to do? I often start it with a question. Um, I ask the child and the caregiver, can we talk a bit more about what to expect during your procedure today now, or do you need a few more minutes to play? And this way it gives them the option if they need to delay it a little further, gives them a little bit more control, but also sets the expectation that there will be a next step and that we're going to need to transition into talking more about the here and now and figuring out how much information they do and don't want. Something I'll do if it's feasible is try to replicate some of the things we'll go through as 
painlessly as possible. I think specifically what I'm thinking about is situations where I'm about to do a lack repair or I'm about to do something with a sharp object. I'm trying to convey to the child that when I do this procedure, they're going to feel some pushing, but it's not going to feel sharp. But at the same time, I try to actually do that. I don't stick them <laughs> with a sharp object where it's not anesthetized, but at the same time, I might try to do some similar equivalent um, to them. I'll, for example, using uh, the angiocath, the plastic part of angiocath and poking them, I'll say, listen, you feel it, but it doesn't hurt. That's what it's sim- going to be similar to. Um, I sometimes will also give them a pinch and say, listen, this is probably what's going to feel like. Uh, you know, Over the past 14 years, I think I've only actually had one patient cry when I pinched them and I felt really bad. <laughs> but other than that, kids of all ages have seemed to tolerate that pretty well. That's and, a hard one to recover from. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when I tell them that it's only going to hurt as much as that pinch. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but, you know, one other trick that I learned from a, from a mentor of mine was, and, and I don't you know, want to put labels on this type of strategy, but if, for example, I have a particularly anxious child and I do need to use a needle, um, sometimes what I may or may not do is I'll show them the angiocath and then I'll say, oh, this is what I'm going to be poking you with. And then I'll poke them with the angiocath, even if it's in a non-anesthetized area, but then use some sort of barrier or some sort of covering that blocks their view of the actual procedure. So while they're distracted with something else in an anesthetized area, then I can proceed to use the actual sharp object, which is not expected to hurt because I have the local anesthesia, but then the patient has the expectation that I'm using an angiocath or something that's benign. And we won't put a label on that right now on what you might want to call that, but it's a strategy <laughs> that probably ties into what you do with medical equipment and how can you facilitate um, decreasing anxiety around it. This this was a question that I did not put in the show notes. And so if uh, if this is an area that you guys don't want to address, I totally get it because I'm sure it's a, it's a minefield. But is it okay to not be 100% honest with young children when it appears developmentally appropriate to not tell them all of the uh, nitty gritty details about what you're going to do. And is, is that in some way unethical? Ooh, I, I would love to tackle this. Yes, please. <laughs> so here, so, and Dan and I actually might have different takes on this slightly. So I'll be curious um, what Dan says. I, I understand where Dan's coming from with what he's saying. I take a slight different take on it in that I try to choose my words so that I'm never lying to the child. So the approach that I might take is I might do the same thing as what Dan did with the angiocath, but my language choice might be more along the lines of, and this is likely what it's going to feel like when we do this next part, um, and just try to eliminate the part of the dialogue that's most stressful for them altogether if I can give them the answer to their concerns in a way that's more safe and developmentally appropriate for them. So I try to go away from 
the explicit lying and more about just tailoring it to, <laughs> tailoring it to the child. And that's where the, I think where the caregivers also can be so helpful in the sense of helping us understand what are the child's triggers and what are some things that we need to address. Um, that being said, I've also had a lot of success with kids who were really frightened about a specific thing. And as I get to know them better, I realize that some degree of desensitization to that specific thing might be more helpful. So in some ways, that's why this work is so challenging is because there's no one size fits all to it. And you really have to tailor depending on the situation in front of you and all the factors that go into it. When it comes to communicating with kids, though, the one policy I do have is I don't make promises. You know, I feel like that's, you know, one of the elements, not the only, but, you know, one of the elements of, you know, building trust and rapport that I try not to do no matter how young the child is, because I have no control about whether or not I can 100% take away the pain. And when they're young, they'll understand and they'll remember. They'll say that this doctor told me that it wasn't going to hurt. And even if they're three, even if they're four, they're going to remember that. And it's going to um, destroy the, uh, you know, the clinician, uh, healthcare worker relationship this kid will have. Um, so, so yeah. So, I mean, you know, the little, you know, tricks and tips and things, you know, really is patient dependent. But I think the one thing I can consistently say is that I avoid making promises about what I can or I can't do. And if a child asks a question that's a bit more subjective, a lot of the times I'll say, well, some kids say it's like this. Other kids have said it's like this. And I would really love it if you could share as we go what it's like for you and how you would describe it so that we can understand better what's going on for you. And I think also to Dan's point, the age of the child makes a big difference as well. So the way we approach things with a preschooler I think is and should be a lot different than the way we approach things with an adolescent. Adolescents, I've certainly met many adolescents who really prefer not to have very much detail, who say, you know, can you please, dis when asked, can you please discuss things with my mom or my dad or my grandmother? I, I just do better if I don't know very much. And that's great when they have that level of self-awareness. So I think it highlights the importance of involving our patients as much as we can. That being said, I've also had preschoolers who can very clearly indicate, no, I don't really want to know much, or yes, I do want to know a lot. And in those situations, I think a lot of the techniques we're talking about can work really well. I just try to be extra careful in those situations that the caregiver in the room understands at an adult level what's going on so that there are no unwelcome surprises for the caregiver as we proceed. It is like I planted the next question with you because my two follow-ups to this were going to be, uh, do you try to incorporate telling the caregiver what you're going to do in the conversation where you tell the patient? Like, are, are you trying to find language that explains it to both of them? Do you have them step out? Sort of how does that go? And and how do you handle it if there's a parent who really feels like the best thing for their kid is to know nothing about what's going on, which, which is a, a hard barrier to overcome? Mm-hmm. For me, it can go either way in terms of whether I speak to the caregiver and the patient at the same time or separately, just depending on the dynamics of the room. One thing I have found, which I always think is really interesting, is that when we do medical play work or when we do teaching work with the actual materials, sometimes even if the caregiver has already had an explanation with the clinician, they walk away from that also commenting on having a deeper understanding of what's going on. So I love being able to involve 
the caregiver and making that a priority, not just for the benefit of the patient, but for the benefit of the procedure as a whole. And to your second question, it absolutely happens that there are caregivers who very much feel strongly that it wouldn't be helpful and could even be detrimental to their child to know a lot of information. I try to gently present the counterpoint from some of our clinical experiences about where some of the pitfalls of that might be, just presenting generally, I'm worried about blank or I'm unsure about how this part might go. What do you think? And sort of inviting that. But at the end of the day, I remind myself, this is not my child. This is someone else's child and they are operating from an entirely different lens than I do. And there may be past experiences that they have or things that are important to them culturally or related to their own experiences that I'm not aware of. And so it's not my place to insert my recommendation over something that they very much feel strongly about. It's more important for me to have an effective partnership with them to help the procedure go well. Because if I try to steer them a certain way and then they don't feel like they're in a trusting relationship with me, then I've sabotaged our success anyway. So what can we do to build an alliance that'll help everyone be as successful as possible? And I think Hillary's comment about the different lens and expectations is spot on because I find that when parents don't want you to tell the kids something, it's because their expectation of what you're going to tell the child is very different from what you actually may say. So, you know, to her point, sort of stepping out and saying, listen, you know, what exactly is it about the information we're going to convey that worries you will create the opportunity to then have you tell them, well, actually, we're able to convey this information in a different way, or this is how we would say it. And oftentimes I find that helps alleviate some of the concerns because then they recognize that what you are going to say or you plan to say or tell the kid is actually quite different from what they're expecting. So I think that's one way to get around that. And to Hillary's point, it's all about recognizing the different frames and lenses that they look at the situation compared to us and what we're familiar with and comfortable doing. This is something I struggle with a lot internally because I, I feel so strongly that kids kids are aware and they they know a lot more than adults give them credit for. And like they're going to pick up on what's going on, whether you talk to them or not, and and then they'll come to their own conclusions. And so if you don't have a hand in in guiding some of the information or, or how they interpret it, you're sort of just leaving it up to chance. And that, that always feels really uncomfortable to me. And I have a hard time stepping back and uh, not applying my beliefs to every, every kid and every family. All right. Now this is where we're going to have to wrap up part one. I think that's a really good place to stop and hopefully gives you an overview of why treating pain in kids in the emergency department likely requires a little bit more intense thought and structure than what we have traditionally done. There's another episode coming right after this. It'll be listed as a bonus episode where we dig into some specific strategies and some pet peeves from both Dan and Hillary. I'm going to thank both Dan and Hillary for spending time recording this. They did a wonderful job, and I hope you'll watch for more of their work. Thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen today. If you want more similar content, you can find the rest of the Little Big Med podcasts at the Little Big website, www.littlebigmed.com, or anywhere that podcasts can be found. If you have some time, it really would help to go over wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and leave a review. It does help others find this show. If you want to keep some conversation going with me or you've got any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.